There wasn't anybody mowing their lawn or any of that. Um, in the distance, every once in a while, you could hear a car, but, but uh, that wasn't very frequently. And so all we were hearing were the birds, you know. And in the middle of it all, every now and then, there was the woodpecker, you know, that would drown out everybody else. I still don't know what he sees in that telephone pole, but he sees something there because, uh, man, he's got holes all around that thing. But, uh, um, and then some, some of the birds would be like, man, I don't remember hearing that sound before. Was that a bird or what was that? You know, and, and that kind of conversation. Um, Wednesday night before we came to primetime, we were sitting out there and uh, uh, almost tempted not to come to primetime because uh, we, were, we were watching um, a young squirrel build a nest. And I'd never really watched the process before. And it's really cool uh, how fast and hard they work, how little time it takes them to bite off a branch and drag it up, you know, to where uh, the fork in the tree is that they're building the nest. Uh, just, just the signs of life this time of year are really cool. I, I would encourage you, um, if your life is at a pace uh, that sometimes you kind of forget to do this, I would like to encourage you to slow down a little bit and just enjoy God's creation when you can, okay? Because I'm convinced that when God created everything, he didn't just create it so that it would be, but he created it for our enjoyment. And uh, sometimes we get so caught up in our lives that we don't, we don't notice what's right underneath our nose, what's right outside our, our house window. And, uh, um, and I, I think it pleases God to see us being pleased by his creation. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into the real message today. Do you recall the time that Jesus said these words? I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Remember that? It's, it's found in John chapter 8. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And the people that were listening to him just pretty much immediately, once he says that, they start picking up rocks. And they're getting ready to throw rocks at him. And a lot of the crowd, you know, involved some of the religious leaders and, and they had a history of sparring with him. They were trying to undermine him, to embarrass him, discredit him in any way that they possibly could. But, but here Jesus, on this occasion, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, what would, would possibly cause that kind of a reaction from them? That they'd be picking up rocks ready to throw at him? Well, the answer is that they saw that as being words of blasphemy. That from their perspective, Jesus was a mere man, yet he was claiming to be God. Because that expression goes all the way back. Before Abraham goes all the way back. It goes back to uh, uh, when God spoke at the burning bush and said, I guess that wasn't after Abraham but, or before Abraham, but, but it goes way back in history when God spoke from the burning bush and said, I am. And the people, they, they saw Jesus as claiming to be God. 
And so that's why they picked up rocks. They were going to stone him to death. This wasn't the only time Jesus ever used that little expression. He also said something similar to this when uh, um, he was being arrested, the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18. Remember the mob came and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And what was Jesus' response to that? I am. Now, I know some of your English translations say, I am he. But what he said was, I am. The very same thing that he said in this passage. And do you remember the reaction of that mob when Jesus said that? They fell backward. There's not any kind of a detailed or even abbreviated explanation, you know, behind that and the way they reacted and, and all, but uh, it was impactful. <laughs> I mean, that's what I walk away from that passage. As soon as Jesus said, I am, boom, it knocked him down. And then they got back up and they arrested Jesus. You know, Jesus kind of picked up on on this, and he used this expression. And John is the one who um, actually records more of these than any of the other gospel writers, that, that Jesus kind of elaborated on this. Rather than just that time um, in John chapter 8 and then that later time in John 18, there were numerous other times that Jesus used some of the same terminology, but, but he gave a little bit further of an explanation. For example, in John chapter 6, we know that chapter is the chapter that records the feeding of the 5,000. And to be clear, it was 5,000 men. And, and so the actual number was much larger than 5,000. By the time you count the, the women and the children, I'm not really sure what number you're going to come up with, but I would think that it would be fairly conservative to say twelve to 15,000 people that he fed. He fed a multitude. And right after all of that happened in John chapter 6, that's when Jesus said, he taught, I am the bread of life. The words I am, the very same words as found in this passage as found in John 18. In John chapter 8, John records that uh, on this particular occasion, a certain expression that Jesus made. And as far as we can figure out, this was during the Festival of Lights, more commonly today referred to as Hanukkah. It was at that time that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 11, this was shortly before Jesus was going to go to Lazarus' tomb and raise Lazarus back to life again. And he was talking to one of Lazarus' sisters, and he said to this sister, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he went and raised a dead man back to life again. In John chapter 14, Thomas is the one asking the question here. He says, we don't know the way. How can we know the way unless someone shows us the way? That was the question. Jesus had just got done saying, my father's house in many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a place. I'll come back and take you to be with me. You know the way to, to, to where I'm talking. And, and Thomas is like, we don't know the way. How would we know the way? Then what did Jesus say? John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, John, he records multiple statements like this. 
And in a sense, you could say he's kind of expanding on, he's kind of elaborating on that statement, I am. Today, we're going to start a, a short three-part message series on the seventh expression that Jesus made, the seventh I am um, statement that he made. This, in fact, was on the very last full day of Jesus' life. Jesus, at the end of this day, is going to be arrested, and the next day he was going to be crucified. And that's when he made this seventh I am statement. And I'm going to go ahead and re read this. Uh, you are welcome to follow along in your Bible. Here's the way it reads. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear even more, or it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Some or such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, there's three um, specific components or characters that are a part of that passage of Scripture. You have the vine, which uh, in that text obviously is a reference to Jesus. You have the branches, which is a reference to the followers of Christ. That would include us, believers. Um, and then you have the gardener, and that is a reference to, to God the Father. One of the things that you see in the Bible is that Jesus often used common things to teach deeper truths, okay? If you've spent any time at all in the four Gospels, you've already picked up on this. You, you have noticed this. And certainly the parables is part of all that, but it's not limited to the parables. But when we think about the parables, you know, some of the ones that come to mind would be like the parable of the sower, you got a guy that's, that's casting seed, and the seed lands on four types of soil, some hard, some uh, rocky, some thorny, and some good, and then expanded comments that Jesus made based on that. But the thing is, Jesus really wasn't trying to give instructions how to have the best yard in your neighborhood. That's not what that was about. This was a spiritual lesson. Though in reference, he was talking about seeds and soil, ultimately what he was referencing was the word of God and people's hearts. So he was taking something that was very common that everyone had seen. In fact, many of the people that were listening to him at the time that he taught this, they had you know, been a part of having done that very thing before. And no matter how careful you are, sometimes seed falls someplace where you don't intend for it to, to go or you know it's not going to be very productive. And, and so people had a lot of experience to draw from in understanding the point that he was making. 
Another one of the stories that he told was about a fishing net. Now, not everyone had been fishermen, although it was a very common occupation because the Sea of Galilee was, was bursting with life and the fishing industry was, was a major thing. In fact, several of the apostles, you know, that's how they um, had made their living for years. But he tells the story about casting a net, and when you pull the net in and you have all these fish, well, you're taking the bad fish and you're tossing them aside, and you're taking and keeping the good fish. Jesus wasn't trying to give some tips here about how to be a better fisherman. He ultimately was giving a spiritual lesson here of the way it's going to play out in the end times at the time of judgment. He told the story about a shepherd that had 100 sheep. One of the sheep wandered off. The shepherd left the 99 and went on an all-out search for the one that wandered off. Shepherding, that was uh, an occupation that, uh, um, I mean, them and their forefathers for centuries, you know, had participated. And in fact, you can go into that part of the world today, and it still is a thing where there's a lot of people that that's what they do is they... Shepherd. Now, some places, especially on the east side of the Jordan River, over in Jordan, sometimes you wonder, what exactly are those sheep eating? Because it didn't look like there was a whole lot of grass out there. But yet it's still a thing. Bedouin shepherds out, and that's how they largely make their living. But Jesus, he ultimately wasn't talking about livestock here. He was, he was talking about the value of a soul. He talks about uh, the ten bridesmaids. We discussed that a couple of weeks ago. That was uh, a thing. Everyone had been to a wedding. Everyone knew how that worked in that culture. You had all these bridesmaids and the trimming of their lamps and escorting the, the groom and all of this kind of stuff. They all knew how that worked, but Jesus ultimately wasn't giving tips about a wedding ceremony. He was talking about the second coming of Jesus and how some people aren't going to be ready. He talked about the hidden treasure. This is one of my favorites in, in regards to this because for, the, for quite a while, I you know, didn't really get a hidden treasure. I mean, why would there be a hidden treasure? But, you know, I grew up in a totally different culture than what they were in at that time. And Israel had a history of having raiders and people coming in and whether it was just a quick trip of raiding and gathering as much loot as you could or coming and occupying the country. For centuries, Israel had that sort of thing happening many times. And people didn't put their valuables in a bank because a bank would be the first place that would be hit. And so what they would do is they would find a cave, <clears throat> a secluded cave somewhere, or um, a landmark that they could dig a deep hole and hide their valuables. And then once the threat had passed, they could go back and retrieve it all. However, the thing is, what if they got killed in the middle of the raid? What if they had been taken captive and never returned and they hadn't told anyone where they had hidden their valuables? All of a sudden now you have hidden treasure in a field that someone eventually is going to stumble upon. It was a thing. Every family had stories of how they had heard that someone stumbled upon a treasure here or there. You see, Jesus was taking common things and he was teaching deeper truths. And that's what he's doing here in John 15. Vineyards were one of their major cash crops. 
in Israel. And in fact, in that part of the world, it had been for a long time. Jesus, talking about the vine and the branches and the gardener, the principles that he was talking about here would have been rather obvious to the 11 that were listening to him. In fact, even way back centuries earlier when, when the 12 spies went to spy out the land of Canaan, you remember what they found, right? And what they ended up bringing back with them? Numbers chapter 13 says, Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. So even before Israel occupied the land of Canaan, you know, vineyards, that was a thing. You know, vines and branches and grapes and all of that, that was a thing. In fact, uh, archaeologists recently discovered an old photograph of this, actually. Um, it's not a very clear picture. I think that was a first-generation Kodak Instamatic that took that picture. But, uh, uh, but, you know, some people look at that particular story and they're, they're saying, oh, a cluster of grapes on a pole? Come on. You know, and what we're thinking about is what you get at the grocery store. You know, a little cluster of grapes like this. And, uh, but, you know, how many of us have grown grapes, especially in an area where they really thrive? Yeah, clusters of grapes can be incredibly large. You know, if you think, well, there's no need of a pole and two people carrying one, well, you probably ought to tell her that because I don't think this gal would want to carry that cluster very far. Um, yeah, so the whole idea of vineyards and grapes and all of that, that predated Israel in the land. But the interesting thing as you're reading through the Old Testament and even the writings of the prophets and all, you keep seeing references to how Israel is referred to as a vine. Uh, Psalm 80 is an example of this. It says, you removed a vine from Egypt. This is talking about when God delivered the Israelites out of bondage. In Egypt, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. That's in the land of Canaan. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Okay, so this is talking about Israel. The prophet Isaiah kind of picks up on that thought. And in chapter 5, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And so we're seeing all kinds of references as you thumb your way through the Bible, you know, regarding uh, this idea of a vine and grapes and all of this. As a matter of fact, even during the silent years, and it, it was quite a few years before I ever did any study on the intertestament period of time, the last book of the Old Testament that was written was Malachi and, uh, and then you have, you know, the Gospels that pick up with the birth of Christ. Well, Malachi was written 400 B.C. And so that's the intertestament period of time, from 400 B.C. to the birth of Christ, the silent years, some refer to it as being. Well, during that time, there was a, a very influential key family called the Maccabees. And, and if you're familiar with some of the apocryphal books and all, um, that the Catholics have in, in their Bible, you know, there's a couple of books that bear that name. 
Well, the, the Maccabees, they even created their own coinage. And it was all building on this theme as well. Around 130 to 150 AD, somewhere in that time, uh, is when uh, the history of these coins um, came into being. And that's one coin, actually. It's just showing both sides of the coin. The picture on the right is a palm tree. The picture on the left, you can make that out for yourself. That is a cluster of grapes. So, so this, this was a very significant thought in Israel's history. Herod the Great um, is the one who had restored the Jerusalem temple in 19 BC. It would have been the temple that Jesus and the apostles and all were familiar with during you know, the playing out of the Gospels. Later, it would be destroyed around 70 AD or so. But, but this, this was a very impressive temple. Well, historians tell us that it had a very large vine of gold hung around the entrance of the holy place. Not the Holy of Holies, because that would have been the inner room, and most people wouldn't have had the chance to see in that. But this is on the outside, the main entrance of the holy place. And you had this, this vine that was all elaborate, and it was gold. I tried to find uh, some rendition of, of that uh, online. Didn't really find any good images on it. But this, this, again, would have been part of people's experience. And anyone that spent any time around Jerusalem was familiar with that. On top of that, stop and think about what is it that Jesus just got done doing right before John 15, verse 1, where he says the words that I read a moment ago. What did they just get done doing? They were in the upper room together, and they had just had the Lord's Supper. The initiation of what we do every Sunday with communion where he took the fruit of the vine, passed it around, and the bread, and passed it around. Do this in remembrance of me. They had just done all of that. And then they, they stepped out of that setting, and then Jesus starts teaching in the way that he's teaching, in the words that I just read. So you can just imagine some of the stuff going through the disciples' minds when they heard these words of Jesus. No wonder Jesus said, he didn't say, actually, I am a vine. He didn't say that. He didn't even say, I am the vine. What Jesus said was, I am the true vine. In other words, all these other things that I just kind of rattled through, all of that was just kind of a foreshadowing of the ultimate vine and the fulfillment of that in Jesus so why did Jesus choose the vine as an allegory to describe our relationship with him? I think that's a fitting question to ask. And the answers to it, um, some of which are rather obvious, but there are several of them. And that's why it's going to take us three Sundays, really, in answering that question. We're going to spend some time talking about fruit because if you were paying attention when I read those first eight verses of John 15, the word fruit came up multiple times. And I stopped at verse 8. The text actually goes on and it comes up again later in the text. And so there's obviously an emphasis of fruit. Now, we're not going to talk much about fruit today, though. We're going to talk about that next week. And then another thing that we're going to talk about is the importance of staying connected. 
how critical that is. As funny as it may sound, that is the role of a branch to stay connected. It's to your own demise if you don't do that. So we're not just going to make assumptions. Okay, well, that's a given. We're all going to stay connected. We're not going to make that assumption. And so in two Sundays, we're going to talk about keeping connected to the Lord. But for today, I really want to drive home that as branches, we really need the vine. We really need the vine. In the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of significant rain showers, wouldn't you say? Actually, more than the last couple of weeks, it's gone beyond that. We haven't had so much the type that that you wake up the next day and your street has three trees knocked over, you know, uprooted. And we, 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 for the most part, haven't had those kind of storms. But here about nine or ten days ago, uh, we had one that came through the night. It didn't do any major damage in our neighborhood. Um, when I got out and about the next day, I did see maybe two trees that lost a significant uh, large branch or something. But what I did find is in in uh, our driveway, um, there's a pretty big tree right uh, close to our driveway, and there were several branches that were about this size, you know, that were laying out there in the driveway, and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I probably need to pick those up. The ones in my yard, I'll let my lawnmower pick up some of those, but uh, um, so, you know, I picked this up, and I knew full well what we were going to be talking about today, and I thought, okay, well, this might be a good object lesson, so I just set it in my garage and uh, got it out uh, for this morning. Now, when I picked this thing up, the leaves were very flexible and soft and, and all. In fact, you could take um, the, uh, this part of the branch, and it, it was flexible enough that you, you could actually almost make it into a circle. Okay, I don't know that I'd want to do that right now because it'll, you know, crack. Uh, because now it is anything but flexible. And you see the shape of the leaves. Um, and if I put much pressure on them, they're just going to crumble um, in, in my fingers. What are the chances that nine days ago when, when this um, was knocked off a tree in the middle of a storm, and I was laying there in my driveway, and I got up just a few hours later, and I saw it, and I picked it up, and, and it looked very much alive. I mean, it looked odd because it was laying on the ground, and that's not really where you see branches or where branches are supposed to be. But, but otherwise, you looked at it, and it looked very much alive. What were the chances it was going to stay that way? I mean, you know, obviously it wasn't, and that was why I set it aside, because I knew what inevitably was going to happen because the branch was severed, and not so much from a tree in this case, or I mean from a vine, but from a tree. The branch was severed from the tree. Uh, this branch had no chance of survival because it was cut off from nourishment. It was cut, cut off from... Uh, um, everything that it needed, the life that it needed, that the tree provided. Well, the same thing would be true in regards to a branch off of a vine. You don't need to be a botanist to figure that out. That's pretty much common sense. Jesus said it this way in that passage I read at the tail end of verse 5. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. 
In other words, we're, we're nothing. We have nothing apart from Christ. To be able to experience life as God intends for you to experience it, you and I, we need Jesus. We are dependent upon him. The, the branch is totally reliant upon the vine. And, and that's a big part of why this particular allegory is being, being told because it communicates that in a very vivid fashion that everybody understands without a whole lot of explanation. About the time you start thinking that you don't have any need for this kind of stuff, you don't have any need for prayer, maybe you, know, you kind of wonder sometimes, why, why did I used to pray? you know, and try to be so diligent about prayer. I don't really need prayer that much. I don't need, you know, this as much. You know, I can spend, you know, some of the time I used to spend with this, you know, watching some of my favorite shows or, or uh, um, what do you call that when you get on Netflix and you just watch show after show after show? Binging, yeah. You know, I, instead, instead of spending all the time reading, I could spend more time binging. Some of my favorite shows are what some of my coworkers say, oh, yeah, you really got to watch this series. And I could do that sort of thing. About the time you start having those kind of thoughts, it spells trouble. You start thinking, I don't need all of this. Why, why do I need to take a chunk of my Sunday morning and be here? About the time you start thinking along those lines, that spells trouble. We've got the 4th of July that's coming up in just a month. And this year, uh, the 4th of July falls on a Sunday. And that hasn't happened very often. I mean, obviously, you would think, well, it only happens once every seven years, right? Well, that's not the way it worked when we first started because leap year prevented that from happening initially. So we went like 13 years as a church not having 4th of July falling on a, on a Sunday. Um, but when it does fall on a Saturday or Sunday, it certainly impacts things as far as attendance and stuff like that is concerned. Here we are one month away from that happening. The 4th of July is a time of a lot of celebration. I mean, obviously fireworks are a part of all of that. You know, some of you uh, uh, may participate a whole lot in that. Others of you just like to observe, you know, that. Um, or maybe you foot the bill and you let your grandkids you know, light them and stuff along those lines. But obviously the 4th of July is a celebration of the Declaration of Independence. 1776, you know, when uh, um, the United States basically got our freedom. And so it is a significant day of celebration and has been that way for a long time in this country. But as I look at things in a more personal way on a more personal level and I look in my life at what I celebrate uh, most um, you know I kind of get into the 4th of July thing a bit but boy there's something I celebrate a whole lot more than that and it's not a declaration of independence in fact it's just the opposite the thing that I have celebrated for 41 years in my life is a point in time when I made my declaration of dependence upon the Lord. And it just ironically happens to fall in July. Um, it was July 13th, 
41 years ago, this coming July 13th. And I still remember it well. I don't really remember the first part of the day, the afternoon and all that. I know I was at work, but, you know, what happened that day, I have no clue. But that evening, I remember the details. And it was right in the middle of the evening, about 8 o'clock, 8.30 at the latest, uh, when I made this decision. The, the decision I had been warming up to for some time, for two or three weeks. And I would say I had been close to having made this decision already, but I was dragging my feet because I knew as soon as I do this, when it hits the fan, I'm going to have grief in my family. I knew it wasn't going to go over well, wasn't going to be received well. And so even though I had spent considerable time reading in Scripture and was continuing every day to read uh, quite a bit of Scripture, um, yet I, I just just wasn't, flipping that switch, making that decision because of, you know, what the fallout was going to entail. And then finally, it was toward the end of that Thursday, July 13th, that I made the decision. And that very same night, I was baptized into Christ. And that, on a very personal level, is what I have celebrated the most every year, having made that decision to embrace Jesus Christ, publicly acknowledging, I need a Savior. I have no hope without one. And even though there was grief for a couple of years that played out in my family, I have never regretted having made that decision. Now, you know, the thing is, if I'm not careful, and the same thing goes for you, if you're not careful, you can start taking that for granted. You know, if there was a point in time in your life, which for most all of you in here, there was, you know, when you made that decision, um, that you can start taking that for granted. I'm talking about what you have in Christ. And when you start taking that for granted, what ends up happening is pride has a way of slipping in. That's just the way that it works. Pride will come up and take residence in your heart. And you'll start thinking that you're okay, that you really maybe after all didn't need all this that much. Why were you taking it all so serious? Why were you impacting your schedule and, and not doing certain things, but you know, trying to discipline yourself in other areas? You know, because little by little, it doesn't seem like that kind of stuff is as significant before. See, that's what's going to happen if you start taking this for granted because you're going to start slipping, you're going to start slacking, and um, next thing you know, stuff like this on a Sunday morning will just simply be a memory. It won't be part of your regular schedule anymore. I think this is part of the problem that was, spark that was sparking the need for the book of Hebrews to be written in the New Testament. Hebrews is a 13-chapter book. It was written to Hebrew Christians, people that were in Judaism, but they had heard the gospel and they had embraced Christ and they became followers of Jesus Christ. And then after a passage of time, and we don't know exactly how much time, they were starting to slack off on that commitment. They were letting up. They were becoming lazy, if I can use that word. And so the book of Hebrews was written to try to, to get their attention. 
There are certain telling verses in Hebrews when you read over the 13 chapters that really stand out and help you to see what the theme is. I'm just going to show you a couple of them. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says this, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, if, if people weren't drifting away, why was that verse written? You see, that was written because it was becoming a problem. And people were not paying as much attention. They were starting to relax spiritually. They were starting that drift that so easily can happen in a person's life. And, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, heads up here of what's happening. You need to start paying more attention. A little bit later in chapter 6, the writer says this, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. In order to make your hope sure, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So apparently it is possible spiritually to become lazy. And when you become lazy, that spells trouble. And that's why he's saying what he is saying here. He says, you don't want that to happen. That's why you got to pay more careful attention. Otherwise, you're slacking, you're slipping, your, your spiritual laziness is having a, a detrimental effect. And so that's what Hebrews is all about, calling attention to that and getting people to get back on top of things spiritually. Now, we're, we're going to talk you know, some more about that in a couple of weeks. We'll go into more detail in regards to that. And like I said earlier, next week we're going we're gonna to be talking about fruit and we may touch some on the role of God the Father as far as pruning goes. But let me kind of give some closing thoughts here in, in regards to pruning because there, there is something I want us to be reflecting on this week. Um, pruning is mentioned a couple of times in those verses. And I'll say this, when you think about pruning, you, you automatically think of it as being an unpleasant thing, right? You know, pruning, if, if plants, if vines had nerve endings, it would be an ouch thing, right? You people, or the branches, they would hurt because of it. But the thing about pruning is that pruning is always for your good. And that bears out in our text as well as reality, as common sense tells you that. Let me show you one of the passages that gives a glimpse of pruning that certainly communicates how uncomfortable it can be. But it's outside of the Gospel of John. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 8, 9, and 10. An example of pruning. Here is what Paul says. We think you ought to know your brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. All right, let's put that on pause for a moment. Sound painful to you? Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly what he's talking about here, but we know the impact it was having on him and those that were with him is they thought they were in over their heads. They thought, we're not going to be able to see this thing through. It's going to get the best of us. 
Okay, it was a painful experience. Now we're ready for the transition statement in this passage. But as a result, we stop relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him. And we will, he will continue to rescue us. So here, here you have an example of what I, I think clearly is, is pruning that God allowed them to go through a stretch of time of some kind of an ordeal that was very problematic. It was very painful. In fact, their whole life apparently flashed before their eyes and they thought this is going to be the end of us. But then in the middle of all of that, you know, as Paul is recounting it, he says, but here was the result. We stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God. You see, the beneficial effect of pruning. Whether you like it or not, we are closer to God in the middle of tough times. That may not be 100% true across the board. You know, you get, you get 10 people or 10 families going through a rough stretch in their life, and you're probably going to have somebody who is going to become bitter. They're not going to become better through that. You know, it's like the old expression, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. And, and that's the way it kind of works sometimes. When people go through adversity, you know, during my lifetime, I can think of, you know, a number of examples of people that really became resentful. They became hardened you know, just unpleasant people in the middle of the adversity. But for every one person that I can think of like that, I think of multiple people that during that time, they actually got closer to God. They became more receptive to God. Maybe for the very first time ever, they became receptive to the gospel message while they were in the middle of whatever that struggle was. It's during those kinds of times we become more prayerful it's during those kinds of times we tend to look to him for answers because we realize we don't have answers in and of ourselves. It's during those kinds of times that we become more reliant on him. And in fact, the, the, the fact of the matter might be that in this room right now, there may be a few here or there that are going through a rough stretch in your life right now. And, and you're having a hard time remembering which way is up. And, and it is a painful process. It may have involved a doctor's visit or a big test that you recently had that you haven't gotten the results on yet. That's what someone in the first service shared with me after the service, that, that that's the roughness of what they're experiencing right now. And they have a doctor's visit coming up this week and they're really nervous about it. It may be something like that or, or it may be something you clearly know and you've already been told relating to your family or relating to your, your health that is, uh, is making it really difficult right now. You know, the thing that I have found, I've seen it, I've seen it for years happening and as of late I've really seen it. Um, a lot, is that in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a struggle, we can't wait for things to get back to normal. Have you noticed that? 
You get someone that is admitted to the hospital because of some kind of a treatment or a surgery and they're recovering from the surgery, so they got to spend a little bit of time in the hospital. You know, it's not uncommon to hear them say something like, I can't wait to get back home where my life can become normal again. You know, and, and if you've spent any time, if you haven't spent any time in the hospital, then you don't know. But if you've spent time in the hospital, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know some of you maybe even cooked in a hospital, but I just got to say, you know, um, I, I've been in multiple hospitals, spent time in multiple hospitals, and I'm not talking about visiting patients. I'm saying I was the patient, and I have yet to have one that I'm like, Man, if I have to go back, I hope I go to that hospital because their meals were incredible. Yeah, you know, it just it doesn't didn't work that way for me. Um, and you know, and and the way they wake you up, you know, I mean, even in the middle of the night, you know, it's like, okay, we need half gallon of blood from you right now. Wait, which is the brightest light in this room? <laughs> Let's roll in the spotlight. We need more light here. You know, I mean, that's what it seems like when you get woke up in the middle of the night and you're having a hard time sleeping anyway, and you just happen to doze off. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, it's during times like that that we can find ourselves thinking, oh, I just can't wait till things get back to normal. And, you know, we've, got, we've now experienced the, what is going to be moving forward, the classic example of this with the coronavirus. I have absolutely, over the last 16 months, lost track of the number of times I've heard people say, I can't wait for this to be over and for things to get back to normal. Have you heard anyone say that? Yeah. Have you said that? <laughs> Probably. And, and I'm sure I have as well. And we want things to get back to normal. But here's the thought, and this occurred to me some time ago. Maybe God doesn't want everything to go back to the way it was. Maybe God doesn't want it to be normal. Maybe that's why God allowed what played out to play out. It's because he doesn't want you in the same place that you were in 16 months ago. He wants you in a different place. And that's why he allowed some of what has happened to happen. Maybe what has been happening for the last 16 months has been part of a pruning process where God is trying to take us from where we were to where he wants us to be. We're going to have our time of communion, and I want to encourage you to reflect on that, to prayerfully think about it, you know, sometimes when we go through adversity and, and pain, sometimes we can get this thought in our mind, where is God in all of this? Has God turned his back on me? Is God distracted and paying attention to something else? Because it just feels like he's deserted me where I'm at. The reality of the matter is you couldn't be further from the truth. And, and part of that, that's part of what communion is all about. This is a time... When we reflect on what Jesus did, God sent his son Jesus into the world to go to the cross, to die on our behalf, 
And on the third day, he was raised again. And God did all that, not because he thought, well, this will be fun for Jesus. No, he did that because you needed that. And I needed that. You are very much in mine. And so during this time of communion, we are reminded of how much God cares. Even when we go through adversity and illness and a coronavirus and all of this kind of stuff, it's not that God is ignoring or turning his back on us. In fact, in so many ways, that is when God is the most active in our life. It's just that he's wanting us not to be normal anymore. He's wanting us to be in a new place in our relationship with him. I want you to think and pray about that, not just at this moment, but in the days to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for something that is so basic as as a vineyard and branches and fruit and all of this, yet Jesus took it and made it of such great value spiritually for us to understand in a whole new way. And Father, I pray that that you would help us to take it to heart um, and help us to be the people that you want us to be. As unpleasant as it can be, Lord, might we cooperate with your spirit and allow you to draw us closer, more reliant upon you than ever before, and as a result, in a better place than ever before. Thank you for loving us so much. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.